is Our American Stories. Winston Churchill, who, by the way, is portrayed brilliantly by Gary Oldman in Darkest Hour. See it if you get a chance. Churchill made 16 visits to America in his lifetime. He traveled here as a soldier, a tourist, and a lecturer. But the late Prime Minister's visit to America in 1941 as a wartime leader was by far his most important. And the speech he gave on December 26, 1941 may have been his most important too, though certainly not as well known as his Iron Curtain speech in 1946 in Fulton, Missouri. And by the way, we did a terrific segment on that, and you can hear Winston give that speech. We love doing that here on this show. The story of that trip back in the winter of 1941 is worth telling. It revealed a lot about not just Churchill's status as a great leader and a great statesman, but as a great salesman, and an indefatigable one, too. The day after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Churchill, who had just turned 67, packed his bags and headed straight for the United States. It would be the most important sales trip of his life, and perhaps the most important sale of the 20th century. The stakes for his home country and the world could not have been higher. Quote, With the fall of France, Britain stood alone decisively inferior in military power to the Nazis, explained Dr. Larry Arne in a speech delivered at Hillsdale College in Michigan. The only thing that could save it was the English Channel and ultimately the entry into the war of the United States. Nobody understood that stark reality better than Churchill. It was why he was on a boat crossing the Atlantic so soon after one of America's darkest hours. His plan was simple. Strengthen relations with President Roosevelt, Congress, and the American people, and prepare them for the exigencies of an extended and difficult war. It was a long trip of ten days through cold, storm-tossed seas. It was a dangerous one, too. U-boats filled the Atlantic. There were serious concerns about Churchill's safety, but Churchill was not deterred. The work ahead was too important, and that work could not be done through phone. Churchill's boat docked in Norfolk, Virginia, just two weeks after the attack on Pearl Harbor. He immediately flew 140 miles north to National Airport in Washington, D.C., where Roosevelt greeted him. Churchill spent the next few days at the White House as a house guest a self-invited house guest, no less, doing what he did best, talking, drinking, smoking, and keeping Roosevelt up until the wee hours in the morning. Eleanor Roosevelt said of Churchill, quote, It was astonishing to me that anyone could smoke so much and drink so much and keep perfectly well. Having successfully bonded with Roosevelt and having mapped out some important wartime planning, Churchill moved on to an equally important objective, bonding with the U.S. Congress and the American public, and selling them on the importance and the inevitability of a combined American and England to combat the Axis powers. For days on end, Churchill worked on his big speech, honing and crafting it in ways only he could. One thing Churchill knew for sure as he was preparing was this, without the American people on his side, his home country was lost. He began the greatest sale of his life to a joint session of Congress 
with these words. Members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives of the United States, I feel greatly honored that you should have invited me to enter the United States Senate chamber and address the representatives of both branches of Congress. The fact that my American forebears have for so many generations played their part in the life of the United States, and that here I am, an Englishman, welcomed in your midst, makes this experience one of the most moving and thrilling in my life, which is already long and has not been entirely uneventful. I, I, wish, I wish indeed that my mother, whose uh, memory I cherish across the veil of years, could have been here to see. Churchill then made clear our countries were connected by much more than a common language. I may confess, however, that I do not feel quite like a fish out of water in a legislative assembly where English is spoken. I'm a child of the House of Commons. I was brought up in my father's house to believe in democracy, trust the people. That was his message. I used to see him cheered at meetings and in the streets by crowds of working men way back in those aristocratic Victorian days when, as the Israelis said, the world was for the few and for the very few. Therefore, I have been in full harmony all my life with the tides which have flowed on both sides of the Atlantic against privilege and monopoly, and I have steered confidently towards the Gettysburg ideal of government of the people, by the people, for the people. What words, what words. I have been in full harmony all my life with the tides which have flowed on both sides of the Atlantic against privilege and monopoly, and I have steered confidently towards the Gettysburg ideal of government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And when we come back, you're going to hear the rest of this remarkable speech, every word of it written by Churchill himself, delivered like only Churchill could. The sale of the century, the most important sale of Churchill's life, of perhaps Western civilization's life as we know it. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to Churchill's joint session of Congress speech the day after Christmas in 1941. Churchill next addressed our very best angels, more certain about the true nature and character of America than many of its own leaders. I should like to say, first of all, how much I have been impressed and encouraged by the breadth of view and sense of proportion which I have found in all quarters over here to which I've had access. Anyone who did not understand the size and solidarity of the foundations of the United States might easily have expected to find an excited, disturbed, self-centered atmosphere with all minds fixed upon the novel, startling, and painful episodes of sudden war as they hit America. After all, the United States have been attacked and set upon by three most powerfully armed dictator states, the greatest military power in Europe, the greatest military power in Asia, Japan, Germany, and Italy have all declared and are making war upon you. And a quarrel is open which can only end in their overthrow or yours. But here in Washington, in these memorable days, I have found an Olympian fortitude which far from being based upon complacency is only the mask of an inflexible purpose and the proof of a sure, well-grounded confidence in the final outcome. (laughs) We in Britain had the same feeling in our darkest days. We too were sure that in the end, all would be well. This was not merely a call to arms. It was a spiritual affirmation of all that was good in America and in his home country. The speech then took a tough turn as Churchill walked Congress and the American people through the difficulties of the task ahead. He understood intuitively his audience could handle what he was about to tell them and that they would rise to the challenge. You do not, I am certain, underrate the severity of the ordeal to which you and we have still to be subjected. The forces ranged against us are enormous. They are bitter, they are ruthless. The wicked men and and their factions who have launched their peoples on the path of war and conquest know that they will be called to terrible account if they cannot beat down by force of arms the peoples they have assailed. They will stop at nothing. They have a vast accumulation of war weapons of all kinds. They have highly trained and disciplined armies, navies, and air services. They have plans and designs which have long been contrived and matured. They will stop at nothing that violence or treachery can suggest. It is quite true that on our side, Our resources in manpower and materials are far greater than theirs. 
but only a portion of your resources are as yet mobilized and developed. And we both of us have much to learn in the cruel art of war. We have therefore without doubt a time of tribulation before us. In this same time, some ground will be lost, which it will be hard and costly to regain. Many disappointments and unpleasant surprises await us. Many of them will afflict us before the full marshalling of our latent and total power can be accomplished. Churchill wasn't finished talking about the rough path ahead, and he invoked scripture to close out this critical part of his speech. No one knew better than Churchill that there was indeed a great spiritual battle ahead, and he wasn't afraid to define it in those stark terms. Some people may be startled or momentarily depressed when, like your president, I speak of a long and a hard war. Our peoples would rather know the truth, somber though it be. And after all, when we are doing the noblest work in the world, not only defending our hearths and homes, but the cause of freedom in every land, the question of whether deliverance comes in 1942 or 1943 or 1944 falls into its proper place in the grand proportions of human history. (coughs) Sure I am that this day, now we are the masters of our fate, that the task which has been set us is not above our strength, that its pangs and toils are not beyond our endurance. As long as we have faith, in our cause and uh, an unconquerable willpower, salvation will not be denied us. In the words of the psalmist, he shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. Churchill then closed out his speech to the American people and to Congress by invoking the spiritual dimension of the battle One last time, and the common belief in such things the two great allies, England and America, shared. If you will allow me to use other language, I will say that he must indeed have a a blind soul who cannot see that some great purpose and design is being worked out here below, of which we have the honor to be the faithful servant. It is not given to us to peer into the mysteries of the future. Still I avow my hope and faith, sure and inviolate, that in the days to come, the British and American peoples will for their own safety and for the good of all walk together in majesty, in justice and in peace. And with those final words, the members of Congress roared with approval, as you're hearing. 
It went on for over a minute. Churchill responded the flashing V victory sign that would become his signature gesture. On New Year's Day, Roosevelt and Churchill visited nearby Mount Vernon to lay a wreath on the tomb of our nation's first president and one of our great warriors, George Washington. Soon thereafter, they met with diplomats from several allied countries to sign a joint declaration to fight the Axis powers. None, they agreed, would negotiate a separate peace. On January 14, 1942, after nearly a month away from his home, the 67-year-old Churchill left for war-torn London with one of his greatest victories. Quote, His visit to the United States has marked a turning point of the war, a Times of London editorial opined upon Churchill's return. No praise can be too high for the farsightedness and promptness of the decision to make it. You know, David McCullough once said that when people are in history and they're studying history, nothing had to happen the way it happened. And that in the end, decisions are made and great men step up. And without it, the world is different. And Churchill, my goodness, what a life lived. What a speech. The greatest sale of the century. I'm going to close with a reading from Dr. Larry Arne's great book, Churchill's Trial. And here's the quote. Churchill had made a speech about the American Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Magna Carta, the documents that mattered and changed the world. All this means, Churchill said, was that people of any country have the right and should have the power by constitutional action, by free, unfettered elections with secret ballots to choose or change the character or form of government under which they dwell, that freedom of speech and thought should reign, that courts of justice, independent of the executive, unbiased by any party, should administer laws which have received the broad assent of large majorities or are consecrated by time and custom. Here, here are the title deeds of freedom which should live in every cottage home. Here is the message of the British and American peoples to mankind. Let us preach what we practice and let us practice what we preach. This is Our American Stories. Churchill's Greatest Sale. our American stories and it's time for another on leadership story this time with the first marine to ever be the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff General Peter Pace the third of four kids of an Italian immigrant Brooklyn New York family Pace graduated from the Naval Academy in 1967 and soon found himself leading a platoon in the middle of the Tet Offensive during the Vietnam War after a distinguished career in and out of combat Pace retired in 2007 as a four-star general. He then did what so many great old Marines do. They try to help the young ones coming up. We're going to listen in on General Pace's talk with third-class midshipmen at the Naval Academy. These are 19-year-olds, 
but Annapolis, along with other service academies and some standout civilian universities like Hillsdale, takes the moral formation of its students very seriously. And so naturally, Pace began his talk with the young midshipmen with a story from back when he was in their shoes. But when I was a third-class mid, don't know why, but both of my roommates decided they were going to start smoking pipes. I watched this for about a week, and I wanted to be part of the family, so to speak. So I went down to the mid-store, bought a pipe. It was $5.50. I paid for it with a $10 bill. There were no credit cards back then. I went back to my room, and I sat there for about two or three days looking at this pipe and saying to myself, why are you doing this? You don't even like to smoke. So I took the pipe back down to the mid-store and was going to trade it back in for my $10 bill, right? I don't remember all the specifics. I should, but I don't. But for some reason, while I was down there, I decided I'm going to keep it. So I go back to my room. Two days later, I get called down to the commandant's office. And he says to me, you have been accused of stealing a pipe from the midshipman store. Because there were no receipts, because we didn't do business then like we do now, I had no way of proving that, yes, I had been in the midshipman store with the pipe in my hand. Yes, I had walked out without paying for it that day, but I had paid for it three days before. I was, I mean, my stomach was a wreck. My brother was in the class of 65. And he came to me and he said, Pete, I love you. If you stole that pipe, you have got to stand up and admit it. And if you did not steal that pipe, then you need to stand your ground and I'm with you. I really do not know how this thing might have turned out except for what happened the day after. One of my classmates was a guy named John Griffin. He was our third class company commander. And John saw that I was upset and said to me, what's the problem? And I told John that I'd been accused of stealing a pipe. And he said, you mean the pipe that I saw you with? And he mentioned the day before the day that I supposedly stole it. And I said, John, are you sure that you saw me with that? And he said, I'm positive because we were doing this. We were studying for this, this test, that, 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 that. John went and saw the company officer, told him what he had seen. I was exonerated. But there was about a month of my life where I really thought that I was going to be shown the door because I had no way to prove myself. Pace then carried the lessons from that month through to the rest of his career. As a result of that, quite honestly, I've been more lenient on more people than I should have been. 
every time some PFC stood in front of me and swore up and down that he didn't do whatever it was he didn't do, I tended to believe him. I'm not sorry I did. Because when you're a leader, you can always show some leniency. If they deserve to be shown the leniency, you'll feel great about having been the leader who gave it to them. And if they don't deserve to be shown the leniency, they'll show themselves again, and you can kill them then. And great advice. After graduating from the academy, Pace quickly found himself leading a platoon of Marines in Vietnam in the middle of the Tet Offensive. And there, something else happened that also shaped his career and his life. We were on patrol. And an incredible young Marine named Lance Corporal Guido Farinaro from Bethpage, New York, 19 years old, born in Italy, naturalized citizen of the U.S., was shot by a sniper right in the chest. I was holding Guido when he died, and I was absolutely enraged. Now, I had heard all the stories about people supposedly cutting off ears and doing things in combat that, you know, weren't right. And I knew, I knew I would never allow myself or any of my Marines to ever do anything immoral or unethical in combat. When Guido died, I was enraged. I called in an artillery strike on the village from which the sniper round was fired. It takes a little while between the time you call for fire and you get it. During that time, my platoon sergeant, who was an E-5 sergeant, but he was on his second tour in Vietnam, didn't say anything to me. He just looked at me. I could tell by the way he was looking at me that what I was doing was wrong. I mean, it just confirmed what I already knew in my heart of hearts. I called off the artillery strike before it was fired. We did what we should have done in the first place, which was to sweep through the village on foot. Go figure, we found nothing but women and children. I don't know how I could live with myself if we had done what I almost did. The point is, the time to set your moral compass is not when your best buddy gets shot, is not when your women get shot down. You will be morally challenged when you are least emotionally prepared to deal with it. Every day since, I have thought about who I am. I got my platoon together that day and apologized to them for almost doing what I almost did. And then every day since then, I have just thought through what's going to happen today that might be a moral challenge, an ethical challenge. 99.9% of the time, the things I could think of never happened. But it got me into a routine of thinking about who I am so that when things that I hadn't thought about happened, I was able to take the two to three seconds, that's all it takes, the two to three seconds to think about, is this who I am, before executing? And when we come back, we're going to hear more from this remarkable speech, General Peter Pace, 
sharing stories from his life. I mean, these are confessionals of a sort. I mean, he was a hair trigger away from killing a whole lot of innocent people because he was just ticked off. And so setting your moral compass, we can all hear words of wisdom like that. And by the way, we all need a sergeant like that who just stares at us. And by the way, that sergeant was going up against a higher rank. He wasn't saying anything, but he was through his silence and through his stare. And we all have that opportunity with our bosses, with people we know and care about. More on leadership. General Peter Pace's stories here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We return to General Peter Pace's talk at Annapolis with 19-year-olds. And not many 19-year-olds are hearing this message, let alone having everything that's happening around them reinforcing this message. And where we left off, Peter Pace had just told a remarkable story about, well, a couple of stories actually, about events that changed his life. And... Of course, not all moral courage is about restraint. Sometimes it's about making the decision that's right for your subordinates, but possibly is hazardous to your career. Here's Pace telling a story from the 1980s when he was commanding about a 1,000 Marines. When I was Lieutenant Colonel Battalion Commander, my battalion was was afloat aboard ship. We were off the Philippines, and we got word that the U.S. Embassy wanted my Marines to come ashore and be part of a parade for President Marcos. The island on which they were going to have the parade was a known island of violence, a lot of insurgents. I said, okay, we can do this, but we're coming in with ammunition because I'm not going to have my mortars, my machine guns, my rifles, and most importantly, my Marines challenged while they're in this parade by insurgents. The word came back. They said, oh, no, you can't do that. You cannot march past President Marcos with ammunition. And my answer back was, okay, we're not going to march past President Marcos. This became a very, very sensitive subject. Messages going back and forth. And I refused to put my Marines ashore. We went back to Okinawa from once we'd come aboard ship. And when I got off ship, I got word that the uh, division commander wanted to see me right away. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, lieutenant colonel, 16 years of service, four to go to retirement. Uh, Now what? What am I going to do next, right? (laughs) I was okay with my decision. But I didn't know whether or not the division commander was. So I walked in and report to him, Major General Glasgow. I walk in and report, and Sir Lieutenant Colonel Pace reporting is ordered. He looks at me and says, Pete, I'm proud of you. <laughs> I didn't know if it was going to be Pete, you're fired, or what it was going to be, okay? But it reinforced for me, again, 
I didn't do that lightly. I didn't do it glibly. I thought about it a lot, real hard. I mean, there's other times when I thought about things really hard and done it wrong. You owe yourself as a leader to think about things the best you can and get to the best clarity you can and then make your decision and live with it and be comfortable in your own skin. Being comfortable in your own skin, that's a tough one when you're making tough decisions like these with so many people's lives on the line. And of course, the higher up in rank one goes, the more complicated and consequential these decisions become. Pace then told the midshipman a story from when he was a one-star brigadier general in the early 1990s. I get a call from the Commandant of Marine Corps saying, hey, uh, 1st Marine Division is going to go to Somalia. They don't have an assistant division commander. General Wilhelm is division commander. wants you as his deputy. Can you go? So I went, and we go ashore. The port of Mogadishu is really very small. We had three pre-position ships with the equipment and one small port that could take one ship at a time. So the ships are coming in and out and they're putting stuff on the, uh, on the uh, deck and, putting, and taking what they need. And because the port itself was so small, you couldn't leave stuff out. You had to put it all back. Whatever you didn't use, you put back on the ship. It went back out. The next ship came in. We're about to go attack a warlord's compound. He has T-55 tanks. Now, if T-55 tanks are significant if you're wearing nothing but your uniform, but kind of pieces of trash if you happen to have your nice M1A1 tank. And you can stand up and take shots with your M1A1 all day long and kill T-55s before they get anywhere near where they can shoot. So we're feeling pretty good about this. General Wilhelm sitting in one chair, and General Pace is sitting in another chair, and we're being briefed, and all of a sudden, the captain, tank, company commander says, How about, uh, excuse me? The main gun, tank ammo, got sent back out to sea. This is the night before an attack. So I'm sitting there, and I always I have kind of a strange sense of humor anyway. And, I mean, it was dead silence, and you could just see General Wilhelm. His jaws were getting... I mean, you could tell he was about to go eat something. (laughs) And I looked at him, and I kind of smirked, and I said, we should do this without ammo. Put yourself in the warlord's position. Do you think that he thinks that we're stupid enough not to have ammo? Wilhelm, who was, went from being totally pissed to being hysterical, says, you're right, but now that we've had our yucks, we're saying, okay, fair enough, this is going to work, but just in case he doesn't believe that we actually have ammo, you know, we need to make sure we've got Cobra gunships and all that stuff stacked up. So the ethical part of this was making sure we, in fact, protected PFC Pace, but the decision part of it was, We need to do this, and we can do this, and nobody would think we're that stupid. So we were that stupid, and we got away with it. (laughs) Having shared some personal stories from throughout his four decades in uniform, General Pace then gave these midshipmen some advice for their careers. Grow where you are planted. You're going to get a chance 
two plus years from now to put in your request for what you want to do next. Some of you are not going to get your first choice. The Marines and the sailors who are looking to you don't care whether it's your first choice or your 12th choice. They need you and they deserve from you that you be the best leader you can possibly be for them. I promise you, if you will ask for and fight for what you want in an assignment and then go do whatever you're told to do like it was your first choice, you will always get another great job as a follow-on job. Why? Because there are more great jobs than there are great people. You can drive yourself nuts worrying about what somebody two or three levels above you is doing that's not right. And there's not a darn thing you can do about that. So my recommendation to you is stay in your lane. And an officer's lane, in my opinion, is what he or she is responsible to do and an understanding of what your boss and their boss are doing and an understanding of what your first subordinate and their first subordinate are doing. If you will focus on that bandwidth and operate as best you can every day in an ethical, moral way with integrity, your, in the case of Marines, your 40 Marine platoon will very quickly become a 200-man company, will very quickly become a 1,000-man battalion because you're focused on the things that you are responsible for and over which you have some ability to have impact. And what great advice that applies to everything in life. Grow where you are planted, the general was telling these 19-year-olds. And there are more great jobs than great people. So true. Don't be in a rush. That was another one I loved. A great coach of mine said, don't be the boy in the rush. Stop rushing. And that's very little difference in that than grow where you are planted. Slow down, make the best of your situation, and learn right here. And by the way, one last story that would probably embarrass General Pace a bit. He's certainly not the sort to push this story himself. After his retirement ceremony at Fort Myer in Virginia on October 1st, 2007, General Pace went to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. By the way, we did too. We sent our Hillsdale students there. And you can go to our website. It was a special Memorial Day celebration. And they talked to folks in front of that memorial, one of the most beautiful memorials in all of Washington, D.C., But Pace went to that memorial, the striking black wall engraved with the names of 58,307 Americans who paid the ultimate price in Vietnam. And onto each 3 by 5 piece of paper, he pinned his four stars, metal representations of his rank, his career, and his code of honor. And again, each of these 3 by 5s was for men who died in his platoon in Vietnam. On those cards, he wrote, These are yours, not mine, exclamation point. With love and respect, your platoon leader, Pete Pace. And there you have it, Peter Pace's story, 
to the third-class midshipmen at the U.S. Naval Academy. In a way, their stories, too, all the fallen men's stories in Vietnam. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. You're listening to Bono introducing The Streets With No Name. And he's been doing this a lot in his life now. Singing his favorite gospel song openly and with passion. We've done a lot of stories of the song here on this show. This is the first time we're spending an hour. And it's not just the story of a song. It's the story of a man, John Newton's story. The writer of Amazing Grace. And John Newton grew up in the 18th century under very difficult conditions. His father was a seaman out in the sea, making his living rough, rough times, rough, rough life. And to tell the story of John Newton and his early life and the seminal experience in his life, which was getting drafted at a very young age to go off and fight on a military warship. Imagine this, the 18th century, a young man just, well, you don't exactly volunteer for these positions back then. Here's Brian Edwards, author of Through Many Dangers, The Story of John Newton. He gave a lecture telling this mesmerizing story. It started with this seminal moment in young John Newton's life. 1744, the French fleet was becoming increasingly aggressive in the Channel, and King George II grew alarmed. The British Navy was always short of sailors. After all, who in his right mind would volunteer to be treated like an animal and suffer the butchery of 18th century naval warfare for just 24 shillings a month? That's £1.20 in modern money, especially when you could earn at least twice that amount if you were in the merchant service. And the government's answer to the shortage of recruitment was the infamous press gang. As part of the war effort, on Saturday the 25th of February, 1744, a day of strong gales with snow, First Lieutenant Thomas Ruffin delivered to Captain Carteret of HMS Harwich, anchored just off Sheerness in Kent, eight 
impressed men, one of whom was John Newton. A merchant sailor was always a prime target of the press gangs, and his bandy legs, his bawdy language, and his rolling gait was a giveaway on the waterfront at Chatham. His name was duly entered into the muster roll early in March. HMS Harridge was a fourth-rate man of war, 976 tons, 50 guns, a length of 140 feet, and a crew of 300. For a month, John suffered cruelly as new crew members were literally beaten into submission. Admiral Vernon, one of the more humane admirals of his time, commented, I quote, Our fleets are defrauded by injustice, marred by violence, and maintained by cruelty. Food was almost inedible, water foul, discipline harsh, ver escape virtually impossible. And yet because his father was a merchant sea captain, and Newton himself had already been to sea with his father, he was soon promoted as midshipman. Newton had a rough start, but he didn't give up. Even amidst his forced service, he did not lose hope. Specifically with the love of his life, Polly, he made sure to write her as often as he could. On the 24th of January, 1745, John, just off a four-hour watch and at one o'clock in the morning, found a space somewhere on the cramped crew quarters to write a letter. He began, Dear Polly. This is the first letter we have from Newton's pen, and it's a warm, flowing, passionate, 18th-century love letter, which closed, I am your most faithful, devoted admirer, Newton. And it ended with a wonderful flourish of squiggles. John was turned 19 and far removed from his mother's Christian faith. Mary Catlett, whom he nicknamed Polly, was just 16 two days before the letter was written. John was raised with a strong Christian faith, but the life of a seaman didn't afford him the best environment to grow into a godly man. All of his early Christian influence came from his mom. John was born on the 24th of July, 1725, at a little village called Wapping, just a mile downriver from the Tower of London. His mother, Elizabeth, was married to a merchant captain living in Red Lion Street. She was a sincere Christian and a member of the independent chapel of Dr. Jennings. John was brought up, therefore, on Bible stories and the hymns of Isaac Watts. Sadly, his mother died just before John's seventh birthday, and by the age of 11, he was at sea with his father. Two years of inferior schooling was all that he ever had. Dr. Johnson, the great uh, lexographer, uh, said uh, of Wapping that one, day, one had only to visit the place, quote, to see such modes of life that one could scarcely imagine. Well, before he was the age of 11, John had seen all those modes of life. He could walk down the end of his street and at execution dock, as it was known, he could watch mutineers and pirates hanging in chains until three tides had washed over them. He saw at a young age things most adults could not handle, but he maintained a soft side, and especially for the woman he gave his heart to. In 1742, John's father had arranged for him to take a job in Jamaica, and with time to kill beforehand, he visited the family of Mr. and Mrs. Catlett in Chatham, uh, in whose home Elizabeth Newton had died. They had six children, and Mary, 
the eldest girl, was almost 14 years when he first met her. As soon as John saw her, he fell madly in love with his Polly, a love that he claimed exceeded all that the Romantics ever thought of, and it remained true and steadfast and unwavering until Mary's death almost 50 years later. And when we come back, more on the life of John Newton, author, writer of Amazing Grace, and we'll capture and chronicle how that song crossed an ocean and became the most played, sung, and known gospel song in America and, of course, the world. This is Our American Stories. stories and we continue with the story of a song and of course the story of a man the song amazing grace the man john newton who wrote it newton's life did not fly into a happily ever after parade of events indeed all the evil that he experienced ultimately became entrenched in his heart but from now on his life became a tangled web of romance impetuous action and unbelief John missed his boat to Jamaica, angered his father, visited Chatham as often as he could, overstayed his welcome, had no career to offer Mary or impress her parents, and finally, for his stupidity, he was himself impressed into His Majesty's Navy. When he wrote that passionate love letter in January 1745, John Newton had been converted to a free-thinking deist. That is, If there is a God, and we cannot know if there is, he's unconcerned, unconnected with this world. And therefore, from now on, morality was for John Newton to decide. He would plan his own life. The Bible stories and the hymns of Isaac Watts were things of the past. John Newton became an evangelist for unbelief. Years later, he wrote in his diary on the 21st of March, 1757, I quote, I was at that time a sinner beyond the common measure of men, having fallen from a pretty close outward profession of the gospel into the blackest apostasy, so that at the age of 22, or rather much sooner, I not only took counsel with the ungodly and walked in the way of sinners, but I was set in the seat of the scorner. I had lived for about four years, not a denier only, but a despiser of the gospel, venting the most outrageous blasphemies in all companies and upon all occasions, speaking of redemption, that amazing display of divine love, wisdom and power as an unholy, insignificant thing, and the person of my ever-blessed and gracious Redeemer as an imposter. In all this time, I believe I never was in the company of any person that made the least pretense of a religious life, but I either endeavoured to laugh him out of it, or if that failed, scorned him in my heart. 
never opened or spoke of the scriptures, but in order to introduce a profane jest upon them, never spent half an hour with anyone with freedom, but I tempted him to sin. For my practice was as vile and abominable as my principles, so that I not only, as many others, indulge youthful sallies, as they are called by some, but lived in the habitual practice of every vice in which my age and circumstances were capable, theft and drunkenness only excepted. And in all these, I was a ringleader and a seducer of others. This was a man who had come to hate God and all those that followed him. The one thing that his heart had a space for, that he longed for, besides his evil ways, was his Mary, and he tried to reach her, but to no avail. The thought of five years' separation from Mary was too much for John, And shortly after that love letter was written, John Newton deserted his ship. He was recaptured by dragoons and Captain Carteret ordered what was known then as a red-checked shirt on the grating. Twenty-five to thirty lashes across his bare back, after which he was carried below where his wounds were cauterized with vinegar, neat spirit, salt water or hot tar. And for days he was in a delirium. In May 1745, the fleet was anchored at Madeira and Newton managed to get himself exchanged for a seaman from a small merchant ship called the Pegasus. And this was possibly his introduction to slavery. The Pegasus was outward bound for Sierra Leone and the adjacent parts of the West African coast. If the Pegasus was a slave trader, her cargo was composed of an uninteresting assortment of lead, copper kettles, brass pans, ladles, basins, boilers, guns, gunpowder, knives, and other miscellaneous items. And then, darkly stored away in her hold, was a grisly array of chains, shackles, neck collars, leg and handcuffs and thumbscrews. Part of her cargo was the money with which to purchase slaves from the local traders on the West African coast, and the other part was the means by which the slaves were kept in order during the fearful second leg of the trade mission from Africa to the West Indies or the Americas, a journey often exceeding seven weeks. Having offloaded the slaves, the ship would then take on sugar, ginger, rum, pearls, cotton and all the other commodities eagerly awaited by the British consumers and it would return home across the final leg of the Atlantic Ocean. It's what became known as the triangular trade. And thus began John Newton's deep work and entanglement with his darkest, darkest of professions, the slave trade itself. John Newton was to become very familiar with this triangular trade, which would generally take somewhere between 12 and 14 months to complete. It was considered at the time, I quote, a genteel occupation. He might have done well, but he worked for an unscrupulous trader and he became a virtual slave himself and the pity of slaves. In fact, he sank so low that he dabbled in animism, at one time even worshipped the moon, and was in the parlance of the time a white man become black. He lived and believed like the natives. In February 1747, by a quite remarkable coincidence, he found himself on board a merchant ship, the Greyhound, bound for England. Only his love for Mary and a blatant lie from the ship's captain actually made him head for home. 
He soon angered the captain by his foul language and bawdy songs, which often ridiculed both the ship and the captain without mentioning either of them by name. But, of course, by the same token, he was very popular with the crew. Halfway across the Atlantic, disaster hit the little ship. On the 10th of March, 1748, a fierce storm shattered the mast and rigging, and the little ship was only kept afloat by her cargo of timber and beeswax. Newton joked that it would be something to laugh over a jug of beer when they arrived at port, to which a sailor on board responded, Oh, no, no, it's too late now. And that, for some reason, went through Newton like a knife. For the first time since a childhood, Newton found himself praying. Lashed to the wheel or working the pumps gave him time to think. Involuntarily, he repeated the words that he had learned from his mother, Proverbs 1, 23, all the way through 31, and his memory seemed aided as he muttered above the wind and the torn canvas these condemning words. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man has regarded, but ye have set at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they shall call me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Finally, after days of anguish and torture of mind, hope and peace flooded in as he put his wavering trust in Christ alone. He later wrote, On that day the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. The greyhound, broken and barely afloat, arrived off Ireland in Loch Swilly, appropriately on Good Friday, the 8th of April, 1748. John Newton's hard heart had been beaten soft, but he had nothing. In his old ways, well, they began calling to him. No money, and with not enough gall to borrow from Polly's father, John set out on what he called his long, lonely walk back to Liverpool. He couldn't afford a coach. He walked every one of the 250 miles of the journey. He signed on as first mate on a slave ship, the Brownlow, and he backslid to the point of becoming almost as bad as before. A near-fatal fever brought him to his senses, and in his delirium and just out of it, he gave his life wholly to Christ. And when we come back, more of the story of Amazing Grace. It's John Newton's story. Of course, it's the story of the song. And of course, it's the story of God's influence himself on a man who needed saving and needed grace. The story of Amazing Grace, the story of John Newton, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of John Newton and the story of a song, Amazing Grace. And we're listening, by the way, to Brian Edwards, the author of Through Many Dangers, the story of John Newton. God had brought Newton to his breaking point yet again, and finally his life began to fall in place. But he had not yet realized the evils of the slave trade. On the 1st of February, back home, 1750, John married Mary at St. Margaret's Parish Church in Rochester, Kent. He had been offered a ship of his own. Now he had something to offer her, and of course, in 18th century style, her father as well. Six months later, in command of his own ship, the Duke of Argyle, a hundred tons and a crew of almost 30, including the captain and mate, he set out on his first journey as a slave ship captain. And for this genteel occupation, he sought the prayers of Christian people before he left. Now, his voyages were always fraught with danger. In the first place, The captain always had, by definition, an unruly crew. Sometimes he recorded in his log that he had to pin some of them to the deck in irons in order to bring them to heel. And then there was always the problem of the slaves looking for an opportunity to escape with 100, 150 or more below decks packed in uh, like books on a shelf. If they did manage to break free, and there are many records where they did on ships, they would massacre understandingly the entire crew before they themselves uh, tried to bring the ship back home. And then, with an unruly crew and the slaves always looking for an opportunity for escape, there was disease and fever. Newton later worked out that something like one out of five sailors never returned home, which compared roughly to the figure of one of all four slaves who died in transit. And when you did land on the African coast or the West Indies, intrigue and treachery by black and white traders alike was rife. Newton said there was only one person on the African coast he ever trusted. Privateers and pirates ruled the seas. Many of the ships to and froing in an earlier century between the new, new lands of America and uh, the home country disappeared without trace because the Barbary pirates from North Africa that were also patrolling the seas made sure that the economy of the North African coast depended upon white slaves, a fact that is not often brought to notice. There was bad weather too and not very good navigation tools and rats ate at the sails and the feet of slaves and sailors alike. This was not a trip. He took only once. He made three journeys in this command position, but he was increasingly uncomfortable with his way of life, which he said felt more like a turnkey or jailer, and it was. And, of course, he hated his separation from Mary, but he had no other career. He was a sailor. He knew nothing else. In November 1754, he was waiting for the fourth command in charge of a brand new ship that was being built for him. He was, in fact, a most successful uh, slave trader, and on his, his third and what proved to be his last voyage, he lost not one member of the crew and not one slave in his journeying, which is unique in the annals of the early the slave traders. But while he was waiting for this in Liverpool, he suddenly experienced a seizure which passed him out for just a few minutes. He recovered. He never experienced it again, but it ended his sailing career. So from August 1755, he was a customs officer at Liverpool. He was actually known as a tide surveyor. His job was to be rowed out by a party of men that he had under his command to every incoming ship and search them for contraband, uh, which, of course, he was very able to do, being an experienced sea captain himself. He knew where you would hide something on board. 
He changed careers again and began his adjustment to land life in Liverpool. Liverpool was a very hard city. Hard and godless. But it was while he was here that he began writing sermons and felt called to the ministry and was invited to preach in one or two churches. He nearly entered the independent ministry and there were times when he seriously considered becoming an evangelist for John Wesley and John Wesley would like him to have considered becoming his second in command to take over leadership when he himself died. But as it happened, and if I may cut the story shorter, on the 17th of June, 1764, he was ordained into the Church of England and settled at Oney in Buckinghamshire as curate in charge of St. Peter's and St. Paul's. And for 16 years, he was a patient, hard-working, caring country parson, often, we are told, wearing his old sea captain's jacket as he visited his people. Not very clerical, but that was Newton. What was his ministry like as a pastor? He wasn't apparently a great orator. Richard Cecil, his first biographer, said, I quote, his utterance was far from clear and his attitudes ungraceful. But he was a warm preacher and he had a consistent life to back it up. He once wrote, I measure ministers by square measure. I have no idea of the size of the table if you only tell me how long it is. But if you tell me how wide it is, I can tell you all its dimensions. So when you tell me what a man is in the pulpit, I want to know what he is like out of the pulpit before I shall know his size. His aim, he once said, was not to acquire the character of a ready speaker, but to win souls to Christ. He claimed he only preached longer than an hour when he had very little to say. Newton was a humble man, a self-taught man, but then came one of the more important moments in his life. He sat down and he wrote the book about his own life story, and it caused quite a sensation. The first year at Olney saw the publication, 1764, of his story, An Authentic Narrative. It was remarkably successful, translated into many languages as well. It was the story of his life up to that point, that year, 1764. Students, politicians, even an admiral made the day's journey from London to Oney to see this man once beaten on deck for deserting his ship. What an incredible testimony of a changed life. Newton continued his testimony by writing hymns but he did this in a very creative and purposeful way. Now, for years, John composed a short aid memoir for his congregation. It was a gift he employed so badly when he was at sea and was now turning to the service of the master. It could take him up to two days to compose a hymn, but when it was completed, it was actually the outline of his sermon. He'd learned it because as he walked down the streets, he heard the women at their bobbins, their bobbin tells, reciting little ditties. It's where all the village gossip went the rounds, actually. And they would cite a ditty to keep them in a rhythm of their, of their bo lace bobbins. And he realized that they had a remarkable memory of remembering verses. So he thought, well, why don't I give them something worthwhile remembering? And he would give an outline of his sermon in the form of a hymn. They forgot the sermon, they learned the hymn, they knew what the sermon was all about. 
Eventually, he wrote a new hymn for his prayer meeting each week and frequently expounded it to the congregation before they were permitted to, permitted to sing it for the first time. He began in earnest at the close of 1772, and within six years, he had written and expounded over 300 hymns. Now, many of his hymns were topical, and that's why they haven't come down to us. They reflected life at Olney, winter, spring, summer, harvest, a violent storm, a sharp frost, the earthquake of 1775, an eclipse of the moon on the 30th of July, 1776, the great fire at Olney, the year later, 1777, and even the visit of a lion to the town. They all provided local themes for hymns that would fix people's minds on much more important issues. Some of the hymns, of course, have become part of our national heritage. He was a godly man, John Newton, but practical too. His understanding of the human heart, his experience of it, equipped him to lead and teach God's word in a way that made sense for the everyday life. And of course, his most famous hymn of all, Amazing Grace, well, that's just the story of John Newton's life. His famous hymn, Amazing Grace, was based upon a sermon he preached on the first morning of a new year from 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 16 to 17, where King David reviews his, the mercy of God to a man as weak and sinful as himself. And John Newton in this hymn, as you well know, reviewed his own life. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how the song, the verses, came to America and became, well, the song we all know and love. The story of a song, Amazing Grace. This is Our American Stories. listening to Andrea Bocelli, his version of Amazing Grace. This is the story of a song. We just covered John Newton's life. He wrote the words. What about the music? Where did it come from and how did it come to America? How did this American, essentially American song get here from Great Britain? Well, that story's chronicled in Stephen Turner's Amazing Grace. Pick the book up. It's terrific. He also wrote the great book, A Man Called Cash. I don't think there's a finer music writer in America than Steve Turner. Well, he started off with a quote from George Pullen Jackson, who wrote the book Spiritual Folk Songs of Early America. This is a 1937 book, a musicologist. And he wrote, quote, The poem is by Newton, but the tune's source is unknown to the Southern compilers. In other words, he had searched, he couldn't find it. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, because there are some breakthrough artists that take this song into the 20th century and propel it 
into every room, every bedroom in America and the world. And one of the first is a gospel singer named Mahalia Jackson, who had this to say about the song and about the types of music that imbued the song with its melodies and its rhythms. She said, quote, I believe the blues and jazz music and even rock and roll stuff all got their beat and their melody from the sanctified church. We Baptists sang sweet and we had the long and short meter on beautiful songs like Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. But when those holiness people tore into I'm so glad that Jesus lifted me up, they came up with a real jubilation. Let's take a listen to Mahalia Jackson's version. And then it was the Falkies who really popularized the song. Said Turner, quote, Pete Seeger seemed like an unlikely user of Amazing Grace. Not only was he not a Christian, but at a time when the most feared enemy of Christian America was godless Russia, he was a member of the American Communist Party. And then came the hit of all hits, Judy Collins. Again, another Falkie. And the watershed event was this a cappella single released by Judy in December of 1970, which climbed into the bestseller charts in both Britain and America. Although a pop hit, Turner wrote, Collins was not a pop singer. She was a folk singer who never disguised her roots. Her recording of Amazing Grace owed nothing to either rock or pop and in fact flouted the conventional wisdom of both. Said Judy Collins, quote, It was a song that I felt and had always known. It had come down to me from rural Tennessee, where my mom's family had produced missionaries and ministers, and from Idaho, where my dad had farmed. It was sung in the Methodist church in Denver, where I was a part of the choir as a child. Here's Judy Collins's version. That's it. 
Of the 500 commercially released recordings held by the Library of Congress, 97% were made in the years after Judy Collins recorded that song. And by the way, she's not a believer, but she loved the song, and that's what's so beautiful about this country. The non-believers can celebrate believers' words, and sometimes vice versa. Now let's take a walk through some of the other great versions of this song, and there are so many. But let's take a listen to how Al Green sets things up. And just a little bit of this. One verse. Ah, ha, ha, And from the soulful Memphis sounds across the pond to Ireland and the Celtic women. And back to the more urban and African-American traditions, here's Ray Charles. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton said this about himself, his own life, and one of the last things he ever wrote, actually. And he was writing this to his God, quote, Perhaps thy grace may have recovered some from an equal degree of apostasy, infidelity, and profligacy, but few of them have been redeemed from such a state of misery and depression as I was in upon the coast of Africa when thy unsought mercy wrought for my deliverance. And so we close with Alan Jackson. This is our American stories, the story of a song, John Newton's story, Amazing Grace's story. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
Ah. Uh-huh. 